you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. It's bound prayer. Father, I pray that as we continue our worship this morning, that each of us will be of the same mind. That, Father, we would desire to to be challenged and changed by your word. Father, we ask that you will help us, Father, to have a better understanding of the life of Christ as we work through the pages of Matthew. We pray, Lord, that it would speak to us, and, Lord, that we would uh, continue to grow in our understanding of all that Christ did, what he said, why he did the things that he did, and why he said what he said, as well as, Father, the ultimate, which we know that he came to die for us. And so, Father, we ask once again that your spirit would continue to strive with us as we seek to learn. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So a few things to note as we dig into this story concerning the temptations of Jesus. Each time Jesus quotes the Bible in response to the devil, he is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. More narrowly, everything has come from a section in Deuteronomy, which is chapters 6, 7, and 8. Remember last week when we were talking about the baptism of Jesus, we talked about there are several different reasons why uh, Jesus was baptized and we talked about him identifying with believers and also him identifying with Israel and this falls into that category so we're not going to read all of Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8 but let me give you a summary of each uh, and you'll begin to catch on why as we work our way through the temptations in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, it begins with the commandments and statutes the judgments that God commanded Israel to keep in the land that they were going to possess. If they keep them, they will increase mightily in the land, but only if they keep and do the commandments of God. So basically, God demands their ardent and their exclusive loyalty. That's really what that was all about, was they were to worship God exclusively, follow Him exclusively, obey Him exclusively. So then Deuteronomy 6 serves as a powerful testament to the all-encompassing nature of God's love and the reciprocal commitment he expects from his people. Basically, they obey, he was going to bless them. So whether they were in prosperity or adversity, our task is to remember his words and to live by them and to pass them down and to ensure that his truth and love resonate through the ages. Chapter 7. 
Chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, God commands Israel to be a separate people. Those who are taken into communion with God must have no communication or relationship with the unfruitful works of darkness. The destruction of Israel's enemies furnishes an illustration of the Christian conflict. We are commanded not to let sin reign, nor are we to support it, nor to approve it, but we are to hate sin and strive against it. God again has promised that it shall not have dominion over us. The Israelites were a holy people. They were set apart from others. Prosperity and abundant blessing was in return for, given to them in return for obedience. They were to have confidence in God's strength and not share in the Canaanite abominations. Then you come to chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. And when you read through that, we realize it is good for us to remember all the ways, both of God's providence and His grace by which He has led them and leads us through the wilderness, that we may prevail and cheerfully serve and trust Him. God humbled the Israelites. He tested the Israelites by subjecting them to 40 years in the wilderness. God gave them manna so they might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God will give Israel a good land. Again, he warns them against pride during times of prosperity. He warns them not to forget the tribulations of the wilderness and how God provided. So they were not to forget God. If they did, they would perish. So what we do know is Israel failed in all of that. Every single bit of that they failed. Uh, they, when they, in fact, we know they were in the wilderness wanderings is because of their disbelief in God. So their wilderness wanderings were proof of their failure. So Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, and this temptation, that's not by accident. You, we are to make this connection with Israel. The 40 years in the wilderness, his 40 days in the wilderness, him being tempted recalls Israel's wilderness experience, and Jesus is going to... F- Succeed where Israel failed. And again, we talk about at times, we talk about the obedience of Christ and the perfect life that he lived. How in one sense we would say that he obeyed the law for us. He did what we could not do. He fulfilled all of the righteous expectations, the righteous demands of God. He fulfilled all of that in every way. In Deuteronomy 8, let me read to you the first two verses of the 8th chapter. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now remember that when God tests us, God is not looking for information he doesn't have. He is testing us, and he is, all these things are done for our benefit, and it's to re- bring something to light, or, or, or you know, to bring about a revelation. So, God says that when he's talking to Israel, that he humbled them. He did that on purpose. He humbled them, and then he tested them to know what was in their heart, so that they would know what was in their heart. So it would be revealed what was in their heart. Because man keeps secrets, and so these things need to be revealed so man can honestly deal with whatever's going on in his life. And of course, to test them whether they would keep his commandments. Would they keep his commandments when things are going well? Would they keep his commandments when things are not going well? What would they do? So now when you go back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, 
There's a lot of different, there's a lot of small things in there we want to make sure we notice from time to time. And this is the first one. In verse 1 it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So here's, this is important. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He was led by the Holy Spirit to be tempted. We sometimes think that if we're going to be led by God, those kinds of things never happen. That's, that's not what that says. We need to trust God implicitly. God is going to test us. He's going to do all kinds of things for our benefit and really for the benefit of others. And so, one of the things that happens is, is there's this idea that some people have that if you follow God, everything will always be good and everything will always be great. Meaning that our circumstances will always be great and always be good. And that's not the case. Not the case at all. In fact, you'd be really hard-pressed to make that case in certain countries. In our country, because of the wealth and all the various opportunities we have, it's easy for that kind of theology to develop because there's so many ways that you know, we, we can be enriched and our lives can become easy. In other countries, you become a believer that basically means you're now marked for death. And that's a reality. It really does happen. We hear these stories are not just stories to move our hearts so we will pray for somebody or give them money. That really is happening. And it's happening by the tens of dozens of maybe hundreds, eight times thousands that are put to death because they're believers in Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God is leading them each and every day. And so we need just to to recognize the workings of God in everyday life and kind of take the broad perspective of things and not just assume, we'll come back to that later, not just assume that if things are going bad, somehow God is not in it. Because God is. Now we know that when he says he was taken into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, we know that God did not tempt Jesus, but he was led to the place of temptation. Satan did have God's permission to tempt Jesus, because if he didn't, he wouldn't have been able to do it. So God clearly gave him permission to do that. Jesus' victory in the temptation was the very goal that God was seeking to accomplish through that event. For us to be able to see Christ's victory over temptation, he had to be led in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's for our benefit. So we could be encouraged. Remember that as Jesus lives his life, he is the perfect God-man. As a man, he never ceases to be God, but as a man, he is living his life dependent upon the Holy Spirit, being led by the Spirit. He is fasting for 40 days, so when it says he was hungry, he really was hungry. He was in a weakened state that would take place when an individual has been fasting for that long, and these very real temptations are coming at him. And as a man, he is resisting these things depending on the power of God now a real quick word about the order of these things just to point this out Luke is the only gospel that states categorically that everything in it is in chronological order that is his purpose that is his goal so when you were to read about the temptations of Jesus in Luke they're in a different order um, so what happens is, is the last temptation of Jesus, where he's shown the kingdoms of the world, that happened second. But it happens last here because of the emphasis that Matthew is trying to make concerning who Jesus is and what's going on. So just a note, just so you know that um, sometimes you have, and I, I, 
Sometimes I hate saying it because it seems it's so obviously ridiculous, but it's not. Because I think the world, the unsaved world, continues to look for anything they can grab onto to try to discredit the Bible. And so you will hear individuals, they will actually say that Matthew and Luke are in disagreement. And that they both can't be right. And that somehow, you know, this, the, the difference in the order is an error on someone's part. It's like saying, if you read a book on World War II, and its, and its focus is on the attack on Pearl Harbor, for someone to say, clearly this book is bogus, it says nothing about the Germans. We would say, well, that's not, that's not the point. The point, which you can tell by the title, which is called, The Attack on Pearl Harbor, is about that. Right? But So people would say, well, of course, that's not false. There's different views, writers have different aims. Well, same thing with the Bible. Same exact thing. But people just lose their mind uh, and are trying to come up with things, and people will fall for this. Fall might be a kind of a loose word. I think there are those who are looking for anything that sounds quasi-intelligent so they can excuse the Bible. That does happen. So we just need to be aware of that uh, when it comes to what, you know, these, what we call differences in Scripture, uh, which obviously are not mistakes. When you look at the wordings of the first two temptations that Matthew deals with, it begins with, if you are the Son of God. Satan is attempting to manipulate Jesus by setting up a situation in which failing to do what Satan wanted would be regarded as an implicit denial of his identity as God's son. It's not, but that's what's going on here. That's the manipulation. Of course, this does imply something, which is this. Satan had knowledge of the declaration that God had just made previously at the baptism of Jesus, that that was his son. But... If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, there's a few things about Satan that are consistent, and this is one of them. He disputes and questions everything God says. And so God has declared that he's the Son of God, and so here comes along Satan and says, well, if you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, do that. So you, you, know, you need to prove this, so everybody will know. And so the devil insists that Jesus must now prove what the Father has plainly proclaimed. So he begins with the temptation of turning stone into bread. It's a very real temptation. Jesus has not eaten. Jesus does have the power to do this. He has the ability to do that. Verse eight of Deuteronomy chapter, I mean, verse three of Deuteronomy chapter eight says, as um, and this is where Jesus is quoting from. He says, "And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might, might that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds or that comes from the mouth of God." So Jesus quotes part of verse three. So when you read Deuteronomy 8, what you learn is that God allowed his people to go hungry. He did that on purpose. He did that so he could feed them with manna. He did that on purpose so he could teach them a lesson. They were dependent upon God. They were dependent upon God. God spoke, the manna came. They were dependent upon every word of God. Obviously not, we know that it goes farther than just our physical dependence and being, you know, our needing to eat. But we live by every word that God says. And so this is what he quotes from in Deuteronomy chapter 8. By doing God, God's commands, man lives by what comes from the mouth of God. Obeying God is more important than having food to eat. Of course, we could ask this question. Why? 
Why would it have been wrong for Jesus to turn those stones into bread? Would it have been wrong? Several answers have been given. This is what some will say. Some say that Jesus was tempted to use his own supernatural power rather than depend on the provision of God the Father. And I think there's truth in that. He was, you know, that, that, there's, that, in that temptation is, stop depending upon God, you do this. Others would say, no, that's not what was going on. Jesus was not allowed to use his power for his own advantage, but only for the benefit of others. So if he turned the stone on the bread, then he would have been using his power for himself. There may be some truth in that. That was the one I'm the most, most familiar with. That's what I heard when I was young, when I was in Sunday school, was that Jesus was not allowed to use the power for himself. And it makes sense. There's a third one. And if you suggest this, since it was the Holy Spirit that had led Jesus into the wilderness, it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to both fast and be tempted. And that God would be the one to signal when the fast was over by sending angels to serve food. So breaking the fast early or prematurely would have been an act of disobedience and would have prevented Jesus from fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus was to end the fast when the testing was over and not before. So Jesus chose obedience over his craving for food. I like that one. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it and say if you don't believe that you're in sin because that would not be true. Uh, there's an element of truth I think in all of these. There is no dogmatic statement as to why it would have been wrong. But I do believe it would have been wrong. And Jesus did not succumb in his weakness because he was physically weak. He did not come. Doing the will of God was the most important thing. Which leads me just a little side note that we need to think about. Sometimes when I read stories of individuals who are suffering persecution because they're believers, sometimes they are threatened. They're threatened in many different ways. And sometimes they're threatened in this way. That if you don't, let's just say, denounce Jesus, you will be killed. And people will say at times, well, clearly they didn't have a choice. So we can't blame them for renouncing Christ. Uh, they did have a choice. Obeying God is more important. Now, I don't expect the world to understand that. There's no way to discuss that with them unless they really want to get into that. We're not advocating suicide. What we are saying is, there's still a choice. There's clearly a choice. And what Jesus is showing us here is that doing the will of God is more important than food. And we need, and again, it's hard for us to even fathom that because we have food. In fact, sometimes we open our refrigerators and it's filled with food and we say, there's nothing to eat. And there's clearly something to eat. There's nothing that we want. Because that's not where we keep the Lay's potato chips or anything else. There's, you know. <laughs> All right, but the thing is, is there is a choice. And, so, and he is showing us that he is committed to doing the will of God regardless. The next temptation, Jesus is taken up to the pinnacle of the temple. 
Satan here quotes Psalm 91 out of context. Let me read to you verses 11 and 12. For he will give, so for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. When it comes to Jesus being taken to the, to the pinnacle of the temple, exactly where that was, there's lots of discussion. There's three, or I think there's three different uh, places people speculate as to where that was. We don't know. There's one place where, I mean, it's, they're all pretty high up. If he had jumped and if angels hadn't caught him, he would have been splattered all over the ground. But there was one area if he had jumped, there was a, a, where a lot of people would have gathered, so they all would have seen. The idea there that some people speculate is that if Jesus jumped and the angels caught him, everybody would see that and immediately know that he is, that he was the Messiah. There's another part of the temple that overlooks the Kidron Valley, so where when you look down, I think the drop is about 450 feet. Which is pretty far. And uh, in fact, they say that it's so high. And some of the Josephus and some of those guys, when they write, say that you kind of get dizzy uh, when you're up there looking down. And so some speculate that that was the spot. We don't really know which spot it was. Each location has its own pros and cons. All we do know is he was on the top and he was tempted uh, by Satan to throw himself down again to prove that he was the Messiah. And again, Satan does quote the scripture, uh, which I know you've all heard this before, but we will say it over and over again. And that is just because somebody quotes the Bible does not mean that they're, they're quoting it correctly. It does not mean they're using it correctly. Uh, there's, there are literally thousands of cults in our country. Thousands. Um, like 3,000, 4,000 cults. A cult is any, any group of individuals. Usually, I think it's... I can't remember what the official FBI number is. I think the FBI number is 200. I'm not positive. It's a long time since I've been to the seminar on cults that they had. But the idea is that where these individuals are following an individual, and, and there's certain requirements. Basically, it's loyalty to the leader. Sometimes it's basically blind loyalty, and there's a long list of things that have to take place. But what is interesting is, is that when it comes to these cults, at least 80%, maybe more, all use the Bible. Every single one of them use the Bible. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, and remember David Koresh and his famous little group uh, that died there in Waco, Texas he would have Bible study for four hours I guess people could say it was wow they really love the Bible four hours of Bible study yeah the whole time he's expounding telling them that he was the Messiah which he clearly wasn't did you know side note there's a small group of people who lived through all of that who still travel back to Waco, Texas every year on the anniversary of his death waiting for him to rise from the dead. That is phenomenal. And so what we need to recognize is sometimes when people are fooled they can be fooled very, very deeply. And so here again is this, this temptation where the devil is trying to convince Jesus that the Father would supernaturally protect him if he gambled his life. We know reading Psalm 91 does not encourage us taking unnecessary risk. It does describe protection against that God will grant those who seek refuge in him. In fact, the bigger context is seeking refuge uh, with God during war and plague. The inevitable things of life that one doesn't have control over and that God will watch over them. But Jesus immediately corrects the devil's distortion. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, which is, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. 
Massa is a reference to an event that's recorded in Exodus 17. I want to read to you part of Exodus 17 so you can have this picture in your mind because Jesus is quoting from this for a reason. Exodus 17, beginning in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses. And they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So what's going on here, I want to make sure that we recognize because of the application to our lives. What's happening here is the people of Israel did not believe God was with them until... God miraculously caused a stream of water to flow from the rock. So here, Jesus is refusing to exhibit this kind of faith. What is this kind of faith? It's superficial faith. It is a faith that trusts God only when He provides miraculous rescue. So in the midst of the trouble, they should have patiently waited on the Lord, but they did not. Patiently waiting does not mean you just wait. You wait trusting in God. They waited grumbling. It's what we all do when we have to go to the DMV or when you have to go to uh, maybe Chick-fil-A and they're not, they're not functioning like we're used to. And we're grumbling as to that, you know, I've been in this line, I know there's 25 cars in front of me, but why is it taking more than five minutes? I'm not used to this. Alright, so we sit there grumbling, having no, no faith or trust in what's going on. So the idea is that superficial faith is a huge, huge problem. Because I don't think superficial faith is saving faith. I think there's a difference. We're not saved by sight. We're saved believing what God has done and what God will do. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you, are, uh, whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So in, in examining our faith, we often find that our faith is much too dependent on circumstances. So here's the thing to think about for just a moment. For many of us, most of the time, our circumstances are pretty good. So it's going to be difficult to see if we have that kind of faith. The only way we're going to see if we have that kind of faith is for there to be trouble. That's the only way that we're going to see it. The danger of superficial faith is that it is circumstantial and not relational. 
so then things are going well and then you're suddenly hit with we all know that the, there are certain big events that happen in the lives of people that are devastating one is you go to a doctor because you have some kind of symptom and you're, they say that you have some kind of cancer and there are some individuals who don't handle that well again when I say handle that I'm not talking about the way that we initially respond emotionally I'm talking about what's going on here and what we think about God and the way we go through whatever we're facing. The idea is is that, that, and I guess maybe sometimes this is true, it's actually more difficult for us to deal with that kind of circumstance when when the person who has cancer is not you, but someone you love. That's when it gets hard. Because we feel like there's nothing you can do for them. You want to do for them, but you don't feel you can. And so... And this is very common. People do this all the time. We know we say we trust God, which we we do, and that's wonderful. But for some individuals, if things don't go well with the treatment, their faith doesn't do well. You know why? Because their faith is based on circumstances. God comes through, I keep believing. God does this for me, I remain faithful. We, we may not say that, but that's how we live it out. Things don't go well, and we begin to have less interest in the Bible, less interest with being with believers, less interest in being disciplined to come to church, less interest here, less interest there. We begin to just kind of wander because things are getting hard. That is revealing where our faith is at. Yes, I know it's hard, but just because things are hard doesn't mean that we have to wander that way. But that's not what that means. It's not automatic. If we are growing in our faith as believers, it's still difficult, but we're still trusting and having true faith in God. Things don't go the way we want. Of course we're disappointed. That would be normal. But our faith in God is unwavering. It cannot always be seen by others. But but this is where we are told we need to examine our faith to make sure that we are trusting in the Lord. And so we do need to ask ourselves, does your faith fluctuate based on the circumstances happening in your life? Now I know that you can try to imagine what you would do if things got hard, but that's not going to be very accurate. It's kind of like our dreams. You know, we're always the hero kind of a thing. Of course I want to come out okay. But it's very different when you go through and you feel the emotional impact of whatever's going on. When you actually have lost something or someone. That's when it's hard. And we sometimes get a few hints as to where our faith is by maybe certain things fluctuating in our life. And it kind of reveals that maybe there's a weakness that's there. And we need to, be, we need to pay attention to that. Do you get mad or frustrated at God or give up on Him when you don't get what you want? Do you find yourself having the same rote, quiet times, day after day, and not growing in new depths and intimacy with God that you've never experienced before? That may be because your faith is dependent upon circumstances. If you don't get a certain feeling, if you don't get a certain charge, if you don't get certain answers to prayer, our faith kind of, you know, now we have to be careful. You don't want to base your understanding of your faith based on how you feel, 
but we, you don't want to dismiss how you feel as well. It, there's a complicated thing there because we're human beings. But we need to have this sense of absolute trust in the Lord that He can be trusted, that He should be trusted regardless. To the non-believer, it looks like blind faith. We know it's not blind, but it looks like blind faith. That's how strong our trust in God should be. It should look ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous to the rest of the world. And oftentimes it will. doesn't matter. We have to answer to God for what's going on. And so we need to reevaluate where we are. And so Jesus is in this situation where he's being tested after 40 days. There is no immediate relief. He's been tempted to feed himself, and he's not doing that. He is clearly trusting in God. He's now said, well, look, stand up here and jump off. God will be forced, you know, you force God's hand and have to care for you. And everybody will instantly know, because Jesus, you know, Jesus is exactly very well known at this point. You know, he's just been baptized by John. John says, here's the Messiah. Now he's in the wilderness by himself being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And it doesn't look like there's a search party coming out for him. He's just out there by himself. It's easy to feel lonely. Easy to feel like you're the only one. And yet, he answers with scripture. He answers with, with a proper understanding of what the word of God has to say. So if these things ring true in your life, it may be because that God sees you only desiring a superficial faith rather than really wanting to know him. People with circumstantial and superficial faith are fickle. I was reading uh, a a devotional from a Puritan, and it didn't name who he was, but there were some things that were said that really made me think that I want to close with that I thought was really good. I'm going to read to you Psalm 103, verse 7. It's a very simple verse, and I would have never come to these conclusions, uh, but this very godly man who meditates on the Word of God was able to think through in this way. So here's the verse. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Okay? The Amplified says, He made known his ways of righteousness and justice to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Okay? Pretty much the same. The New Living Translation, you can get that for you kids, reads, He revealed his character to Moses, and his deeds to the people of of Israel. So this is a a phrase from what was said. While God reveals his deeds to everyone, he reveals his character to people who really want to know him and be close to him. I never thought of the difference. He revealed his character. The essence of who he is, he revealed that to Moses, but not to the rest of Israel. He showed him his deeds. He didn't hide himself. We should have a desire to want to cultivate the relationship they have with God to where we want to really know Him, not just stuff He can give to us. You know, don't you think, don't answer out loud because I don't want you to get in trouble. Whenever I say that, you know something's coming up with marriage. Don't you want to get to know your spouse that way? You don't just marry her because she can cook, right? You don't just marry him because he's got six-figure income. You don't just marry them because they look good standing next to you or make you look good because they're standing next to you or whatever. All right, the idea is, is that we want, we, we want to get to know that person even better. You know the idea of wanting to grow old with that person? 
sometimes people say, I want to know everything about you. That is, then is the test of marriage, when you begin to learn everything about them. You're like, whoa, that is not what I wanted to know. All right? But, you know, that kind of goes along with the territory. All right? So the thing is, is, though, is, is in that relationship, we want to know that person on a deeper level, not just stuff about them. And we really actually want people to know us. Right? We want people to love us for who we are. And we are a mess. That's why there are some individuals who are just stunned that there's anybody who would marry them and stick with them all this time. Because they know what they're like. And they're very grateful to God for that. And we should be. When it comes to God, we do want to know God. But we also know this. It's really cool being known by Him. Right? That would, that would be great. That, that, and that is great. God's the one in heaven. He's the one that kind of you know, takes care of who comes in. And He knows you. Come on. That's good, good stuff. So when it comes to this, we don't want to have this superficial faith and be content with just Him answering a few prayers here and there. And so that's the question. Do I want God or do I just want what God gives? We have to decide if our superficial faith is what we really want for us, if it's enough. We can have an ever-deepening and fulfilling relationship with God that sustains us through everything and anything life brings. This is not a threat to where I'm somehow trying to veil negativity with a positive thing. We're not, I'm not trying to manipulate you into thinking that, that the most important aspect of life is for you to go through a great deal of trouble so that you can, so it can be revealed to you where your faith is so you can get close to God. But that is a very important factor. It's a key thing. We already know bad things happen not just to good people, to everyone. Life is difficult. We live in a world that is cursed by sin. We are surrounded by people who are in bondage to sin. We were in bondage to sin. We still sin. We even betray each other and let each other down, even when we don't intend to. We have a mean streak. Others have a mean streak. We can be sarcastic. Others can be sarcastic. We can cheat others and others can cheat us. And this is where we live in. And so we're not, I'm not making something up like, you know, I'm trying to put a damper on your day. What I'm saying is don't let those things go to waste. Recognize that God is involved in every aspect of your life. And there are times when, in a sense, we may be in the wilderness. You may feel like you're in the wilderness spiritually or what have you. And God is doing that because He is testing you so that it can be revealed to you, to God as well, what is in your heart and where you're at. So you will long for that which is most important. For you will long to be with Him. I am so glad that the faith, really, that Christ exercised was not a superficial kind of faith. He knows the Father. And because He knows the character of God, yes, He's God, but He knows the character of God, He waited patiently for the testing to end. He was going to wait patiently for God to reveal him to Israel as to him being the Messiah. We need to wait patiently wait for God, whether to meet our needs or whatever it is that we're concerned with or praying for. God can be trusted. And we each can come to know God in a deeper way, in the same way. It, it's not different for me or for you. It's not easier for someone else than for you. It's, the spiritual disciplines are the same for all of us. Spend time in the Word of God. 
Read the Word of God. Think about the Word of God. Pray through the Word of God. Pray for your growth and pray for the growth of others. Gather with believers to worship God, to be encouraged through His Word, to pray for each other, to pray with each other. Sing praises to each other uh, and to God so our hearts will be lifted up and encouraged. Review together the truths of the Word of God. Live it out in obedience. And through all of that, God will continue to draw you closer to Himself and reveal Himself to you in a much deeper way. And for those who are going through times of great difficulty, we don't just pray for their healing. Pray for that. But pray that God will reveal Himself in a deeper way to that individual and that that individual will be open to that, that they will want that, that they will recognize that need in their life. And they will be the better for it. And we will be the better for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, and love. Help us, Father, to be a people that want to see your character. Help us, Father, to always be excited about your answer to prayer, but not only to live based on you answering prayer. We ask, Father, you help us to evaluate ourselves so that, Father, we would recognize if our faith is superficial or not. I pray, Father, for each one here who may experience a faith that wavers on circumstances, that, Lord, that you will bring a deep conviction and longing for you in their heart. I pray, Lord, that we'll be an encouragement to each other and that none of us will be satisfied if we do realize that our faith is based on circumstances. When our circumstances are good, if they're good now, we praise your name and thank you for that. We pray, Lord, that we will be faithful to you when circumstances are not so favorable, regardless of what they may be. Help us to be strong for others and never judge others because they seem to waver when their circumstances are poor. Help us, Father, to be a rock for them. In the same way, Lord, that we will need others to be a rock for us when we go through times of great difficulty. Thank you, Father, for using your people to be your hands and your feet and your mouthpiece when we are in need. Help us, Father, to be that for others. And Father, for those who have never experienced your hand of peace and comfort, who really have no idea what it's like to be free from guilt because they have been forgiven of their sin. We pray, Lord, again, that your Spirit would convict them of their need of Christ, that they are separated from you, and that as we read in Scripture, you yearn for them, and you long for them. We pray, Lord, that they would recognize that it is their sin that stands in the way, and there's nothing that they can do about it, and that they would run to you, trusting in Christ and what he's done. As always, Father, we thank you for being so incredibly patient with us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.